0: Hi, and welcome to the Tough Fish Show. I'm your host, Jen Mellius, and I'm so glad that you're here and can't wait to introduce to you Grace Salmon. Grace Salmon is an educator, entrepreneur, and author. She's created four companies and written four books. Her debut novel, The Eaves*, is a story of lives lived well and lives in transition. It's a story about leaving your mark in the world at any age. Grace is committed to volunteering and enjoys tennis and pickleball. She lives on the west coast of Florida with her husband and a small herd of imaginary llamas. Let's dive into the pond and meet Grace. Welcome to the Tough Fish Show. I am so excited to bring to you Grace Salmon. Grace, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: I'm really excited to be here with you, Jen. Thanks so much for having me. You're one tough fish.
0: (laughs) As one fish to another, huh? With salmon as your last name. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) So I would love for you to start, Grace, by helping people understand, like, how'd you get into writing to begin with?
1: You know, I think I've always been writing. I tell people writing was my first language, and obviously that couldn't be true, but I always felt I could communicate much better in the written word. It gives me that extra second to think maybe before something comes out of my mouth, but the words seem to come together much more clearly when I'm trying to put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard. So ever since I was little, I would always write little stories. Um, My parents always encouraged that, which sometimes didn't work out very well for my siblings because I would write stories about them as well.
0: (laughs) Fantastic.
1: Oh my gosh, that's awesome. (laughs) And it's funny, you know, I love all kinds of writing. Some people like to write fiction, some like to write nonfiction. I like it all. I think my first job was as an admissions counselor at a university. And very quickly, I was suddenly writing all of their brochures. And that was great fun. And it didn't matter that we would say something like, take I-95 South and get off at this exit. I loved the whole magic that my words somehow would matter. And then I was an educational consultant for almost 30 years, and I wrote three educational books. And then when that started changing, I thought, what am I going to write? How am I going to continue to communicate? And then I had my novel.
0: I love that. And like you, I have written in different genres, but I read different genres, too. I think that that's, it's just so fun. And it to me, it's it, that it just gives you different perspectives. So I totally am with you on how to embracing more other, other, other genres. I can't talk other genres, (laughs) other areas altogether. So to your point, you wrote three educational books. So what was it like to shift from almost like a technical nonfiction type of book to a fiction-based book?
1: In some ways, it wasn't a big shift, because I think people learn best through the art of story. And even in the three educational books, which were very data-driven, very solidly based in best practices and solid outcomes, and really around high school improvement. And if you ask me, the American high school is the toughest institution we have in the United States. So if we're looking at those things, I like to tell how we get at that through the art of story. I would talk to teachers, I would talk with administrators, and then I would marry that to the data points. And talk about how we could then progress. So then when you get to novel writing, I used very much the same techniques. In curriculum, we talk about starting with the end in mind. If we want kids to understand the civil rights movement, we have to talk about everything that led up to that. So in my novel, I knew where I wanted to go. I wanted my story of the eaves to be a transformational story about saying that we leave our mark on the world and we are never done, no matter what our age is. So if I wanted that to be the message, I had to then backward map. So the writing wasn't that different. There's lots of data uh, in my novel and not in terms of numeric data, but a lot of factoids, which make it, I think, for readers, a lot of fun because they're learning as they read.
0: I think that's awesome. I think about like reverse engineering or project managing, even like you have to have that end picture and then back up. And it doesn't mean that it's always that straight shot. It doesn't necessarily mean that the whole path that you thought you would take, you actually use, you might zigzag instead of take a direct shot, but at least you have an idea of what you're trying to achieve.
1: I think you're exactly right, Jen. When I knew where I wanted the end to go, but I used developmental um, editors, which you are such a skilled one. So I didn't have the gift of using you, but I used developmental editors and I used a beta group of readers. And as they were reading, they both prompted me about what they thought should happen. Frequently, I would dismiss that. And then at the end, they would say, But this didn't happen, and it really needed to. And I'll give you an example. There's a character that comes at the end of the book, and his name is Jesper. And he was not supposed to be there. He was not conceived at the beginning, he was not conceived by me at the end. But my developmental readers, my beta group people, said, You know, there's a missing link between the first two chapters. And he never shows up again. And I kept on saying he doesn't need to. But the more I listened, they were right, I was wrong. And so I have this wonderful character that I needed to conceive and create. So I knew where I wanted to go, but the details aren't always there exactly as you say. So
0: How did you come up with the name?
1: That was a really interesting piece for me because I love doing the research, as I just said. And when I talk to many authors, they love the research part of their work. I knew my character was born around mid to late 1970s. And since I kind of gave birth to him, if you will, kicking and screaming, I didn't think he needed to be in the book. I knew he was born in Norway and I went out and I just researched what were the most common boys' names in that period. And the common name was Jesper. And what was interesting is the main character in the book is named Jessica. She goes by Jess, Jesper goes by yes. And and that was just like one of those um, arm tingling moments that as I was typing, I was like, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. So how was, did you it, come up with the name of the Eaves?
1: The eaves that's a wonderful uh, story. And I love that so many of your listeners and the mission of your podcast really is to help other writers and to have us have a dialogue about how things become to be. The original name of the book was going to be Living Lessons. And I thought that was brilliant. It was filled with double entendre. And I love double entendre. And the main character, Jessica, is horribly lost. She's disconnected from everything in her life, except for her lies and her vodka. And she is just a mess. She's a hot, hot mess. And she meets this group of diverse, determined, and sometimes ditzy older women. Uh, The youngest character in the book is 15. The oldest is 94. And so she meets this group of women and she's so broken herself. She just writes down the things that she is learning from them. And they are things as simple, Jen, as be kinder than you need to be go with the flow, you know, just little tiny things. So I thought these women were living lessons. So I thought that was brilliant, except everybody thought it was a self-help book. <laughs> and then nobody, not only did they say it sounded like a self-help book, they also said, nobody wants to be hit over the head with lessons. Let them get the lessons from the story. So then I had to come up with another title. And then at that point, of course, you just say, oh, well, just give me one. Well, that didn't happen. So these women, these older women are living in community. They're living together on a sustainable farm. And their goal in life is to leave their mark on the land. They believe they're not at the end of their lives, but they're at the beginning. They are eaves. They are women who are starting something. And then I realized the name of the book should be the Eves. I love that.
0: Thank you. I so so love that because I I love that you had an idea for it at first, but that you considered other perspectives, just like you considered another perspective for your for one of your characters, and you were open to it, but yet you stayed true to what you were intending to. That you didn't just arbitrarily say I you know. I have to go this route because of the feedback you chose to still honor your voice inside and honor the vision that you had while taking in that new information. And I think that's really important because it can be so easy to take the other feedback, but you don't want to lose sight of what you were creating because this is your story to to have created and then to talk about and to share because you took the time with it. This was your idea to begin with.
1: And it's got to be your story. I had an idea for a novel after this and I had, yeah, I've been playing with it, but I think it's not my story. I have something else going around in my head, and I think that might be, be my story. I could probably, if somebody sat down and said, quick, write this book, I could probably do it, but it would be much more that technical writing that, for me, I can knock out quite easily. So I think that your point is very important. It's got to be your story, and you've got to stay true to it. But we also have to be very open because the things that we learn about how our writing impacts others is going to feed our next story and gets our our current story much better. My book is very emotionally driven. It's very character driven and place driven. We go we start out in Washington, D.C. and the beautiful Maryland countryside right overlooking Calvert Cliffs, Maryland. And then there's a side trip to Germany. uh, I'm sorry, to Africa and a side trip to Norway. So those things were really, really important to me to have those places in place. But I I wanted to stay true to that story, if you will, to make sure that that's where we are in the story. Um, I I could have taken it a couple of other places, but I didn't.
0: So to your point, you've mentioned research and, um, and obviously by selecting certain places, you wanted to research those so that you were being true to that location and what would be happening there too. Would you talk a bit about about your research process? And like, do you have any tips that would help authors who might not have that skill as developed?
1: The first thing I'd say is beware of the rabbit holes, because (laughs) as, as an author, and if you have any real interest in the research part of it, you can go down a rabbit hole and it will take you two days before you come up and say, really all you needed to know was, yes, there were zippers in a certain year. Um, I had a friend of mine who's a historical uh, fiction author and she was saying it took her two days to figure out all she really needed to know was, yes, there were wooden buttons then. You know, She got into the whole costuming, et cetera. So my first caveat is, Uh, Do the research for sure, because it's going to make your story so much more authentic. If you can throw in, weave in these wonderful factoids and slants of data and research, your stories will be so much better. The second part of that, though, is beware of the rabbit hole. Know why you're going in there. In something that I'm researching now, there's a suffragette. And I can spend a day and a half reading about suffragettes and really I just need to know roughly how many were there in Ohio were any of them ever killed in a protest. And that's something I could do very, very quickly. But the, the research itself, I, I love doing it. I use multiple resources. Sometimes I'll go out and ask people or ask people like in a historical society. Um, my next book, I want to be grounded in Cleveland, Ohio, where I visit but I have not lived, and it may be a mistake in that I had hoped to be out there two or three times by this time, and I haven't made it, you know, given pandemic travel, but I think that the there are so many resources. In the eaves, I have driven down Route 4 in Maryland many, many times, but in order to make it authentic for Jessica to drive down. I needed to know what it looked like today and currently I live in Florida. So I didn't have that opportunity to pop into National Airport, drive down Route 4 and wind up over Calvert Cliffs. So I used Google Maps to the point where I could even say and then where the road bends slightly right out of you at right after you come out of Lower Marlboro. Those are the subtle things that I think make you believable to somebody who has actually driven that road, but also give someone a a sway and a feel for the book, which is so much more um, embedded in the reader's mind than I think. So lots of research.
0: So then how do you know when you have done so much research? Sometimes you can get to a point then when you have too much information to get into this story or to get into this character. So then you are having to pick, this is okay to include. This really doesn't need to be, even though I really liked that. So yes, the editing process can help with that. But do you have any suggestions going in that perhaps do you deliberately put everything you have knowing you're going to strip out? Or do you take some time with the information that you've collected and then say, what's really important to me?
1: I think it's that what I said and what you just clearly reiterated is, why are you getting that piece of data? Why are you putting that piece of research in there? Is it because the character is on a hunt for something and he or she needs to know that? Is it because you want to add character to the story, Uh you have to know the why and then I would tell you to overwrite for a little bit on it because you're having fun with it but know that a lot of it's probably going to be pulled out either by yourself in your own second read or third read and then perhaps by an editor the other thing I would say is never throw it away because you could probably weave it into another book
0: yep totally was thinking the same thing I love that you said that that is so so good and terrifying. I think it also
1: makes it interesting for me, Jen, when I, ha- when I do interviews, which I'm really blessed to have been asked to do so many interviews, this is the anniversary, actually, this week is the one year anniversary of the Eves coming out. And I think I'm on interview number, thank you, like number 45 or something. So that's really lovely. But it also makes for wonderful conversation when someone says, oh, you talked about this little bell tinkling in the, the little store. There's a little store across from where the women live. And I can talk about why I included that. And Those are just the things I think that within your research, hold on to that, have a research folder, even if it doesn't make it into your book.
0: Yeah, I think of that as like backstory, that sometimes that backstory does need to come through in some ways. And sometimes it's necessary for you to actually tell the story, but it never really shows up directly in the story. So would you talk a little bit about how you go about character development then? Because to your point, the book is character emotionally driven, character driven, and I love that. So would you please talk a bit about how you did that?
1: For me, what was critical was that my characters had to be diverse. So I mentioned already that they're aged from 15 to 94. I also wanted them to be culturally diverse. So I have Black people, white people, people who are part Native American. I have a Latinx family. I have a lesbian couple. So those were all very important voices for me to capture, but also as a Caucasian writer, really also the onus is on me to make sure I get those voices as authentic as possible and not to be having my characters out of character, if you will. Yes. And I, and I also say that, and as I say that, Uh, about myself as a Caucasian writer. I also always say that it's important to me to say that not any one person um, is the speaker for any one group. You know, groups are not monolithic. All Black women don't feel this. All Latinx men don't feel that. Uh, So even though I had a diverse group of readers, I would never want to put the burden on them to say, so do you think all Native Americans would agree with this statement? You you know, because we're we're not monolithic. And I think that that's important. Uh, So that the diversity was important to me, the age was important. And then I would say also, many of the characters, because this is my first novel, they are imaged on people I know. Not not word for word, but there's an older Italian woman uh, who's just delightful in the book named Elizabeth. And she is very much modeled on an older Italian woman friend of mine named Dolores. So I had images in my mind of if I had to cast this, who would they be? Uh, So some of them were real people. In the case of Tobias, he's very much like my own dad. And I've already said that I'm Caucasian, but Tobias is a 90-ish African-American medical doctor. And Morgan Freeman is so supposed to play him if it ever comes (laughs) to Netflix or the big screen. That's awesome. (laughs) So I'm just keep putting it out there, Jen. Just keep putting it out there. But he was my character as I wrote Tobias, I was thinking how Morgan Freeman would play him. So uh, Mr. Freeman, if you're listening.
0: I love that, but Thank I you. I think that way too, when I'm thinking of some characters have, I realize I've done that in some cases and that, that helps me when I think about different personality traits or different behaviors or uh, or idiosyncrasies for that character. So all of those things come into play. I think that's really cool. I would love to switch gears just a little bit with you because you mentioned something that I think is wonderful and that you have been on what you said, 45 podcasts. And I think that is fantastic. And I would love for you to talk about if you have any tips or suggestions as to how you have prepared to be a fantastic guest.
1: Well, thank you. I would tell you, again, a lot of it is research. I, had, I was lucky. I hired two different publicists in the very beginning because there's so much that goes on around a book launch. So they got me started. And I would say that it wouldn't, oh, it wasn't probably until maybe two, three months in that I th- thought, oh, I can circle back and I can ask Jen, do you have anybody else that you think would like to interview me? And it's amazing because you in the podcast world or the blog world, because those frequently overlap, know each other. As you know, in my author community, a year ago, I knew nobody. I I could tell you all the things I didn't know a year ago as an author. and, And that might be an interesting discussion, the things I didn't know, but People know each other within their podcast or blog community. So it no longer is an act of hubris for me to say, Jen, you know, I had a great time with you on your show today. Is there anybody else you would want to refer me to? That said, I also like to know who is going to interview me? What is their interest? Who else have they interviewed? What is the goal for their podcast? So not only do I get to speak my truth, but I make your show, I hope, as valuable to your readers and your, I'm sorry, your listeners as you would want it to be. So I do my research on the host, the show. I always listen to several episodes so that I can get a flavor for it. And it's a lot of fun for me. I think the only thing that's more fun, perhaps, is when I'm talking to book clubs or doing author events where there's interaction, especially if somebody's had the opportunity to to read the book.
0: Totally, I totally agree. I love that you shared that because, you know, sometimes that preparation is something that someone might not know where to start, but then then Once they, they do get that interview, then they might feel a little nervous or maybe even nervous putting themselves out there. Do you have any tips to help them bolster their confidence to know that they can handle it?
1: Yes, first of all, and, and I'm not anybody who usually gives advice, but because you framed <laughs> your question that way, I would say to others, know that public speaking is the number one fear among Americans. So don't beat yourself up for that nervousness. The second thing, there are so many vehicles now. I think we're taping via Zoom today. You can tape yourself in Zoom. I'm doing a lot of work with StreamYard now. And you can... In StreamYard, you may be able to do it in Zoom, I don't know, but I was just trying to practice. I hosted a StreamYard event the other night for six authors and I wanted to bring their faces up big and make them small. And I wanted to take them out of the studio. Well, you can open StreamYard six different times and have yourself there six different times. So you can see yourself in different scenarios. You can tape yourself. You can make a practice session. And I would do that. And get since all of us are so uh, comfortable now, in the various media platforms i would say just call up a friend and have them pelt interview questions at you and tape it and see what you felt you were good at and what you weren't i love that thank
0: you so much because i mean i just think it's so important for someone else to hear what else they could do because if they do feel like they want to do something be a guest or what have you then it might be that now how do i work up the courage and how do i go about this so You just dropped a whole lot of wonderful nuggets there. Thank you so, so much. I'm so glad you did. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, you're more than welcome.
0: So Grace, where can people find you and where can they find your book?
1: Thanks for asking. First of all, anybody can email me anytime at grace at gracesalmon.com dot net and it's salmon said like the fish but it's spelled s-a-m-m-o-n so my website is gracesalmon.net and you can see all my podcasts and blogs that are posted there but please if you have a question a follow-up question just email me and i i'll usually get back to you within two days so i'd I'd love to hear from you. You can get my book at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You can request it from bookstores. It's available at Apple Books. Uh, You can obviously get it in ebook. And I'd I'd love it if you read it. And more than that, I'd love it if you told me you were reading it. I can follow along as you go.
0: Oh, I love it. Grace, thank you so much for making time to be on this show. I am so glad you were. You're
1: so much fun. Jen, you were great. Thank you for what you do out here in the world of interviews. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening today. I'm so glad you were here and know there were some valuable nuggets shared to keep going, keep writing, and keep sharing your work. I'm a big believer that if you have a book that's in your heart to write, then there's someone else out there who needs to read it. Your story needs to be shared, so you have to write it and get it out into the world. Until next time, keep swimming upstream while going with the flow and get your book into the world. To learn more about tough fish and jump into the pond, visit Jennifermilius.com forward slash tough fish.